encourage you to grab it. We're going to be in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 is where we're going to be today. And if you don't own a Bible, there should be a Bible in the seat back in front of you. And we want to make sure that you can have that Bible. That's our gift to you so that you can have a copy of God's word to follow along with. Luke chapter 7. We're going to start reading this morning in verse number 36. And the Bible says this. And one of the Pharisees desired that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment. And stood at his feet behind him, weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee, which had been him, saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he said, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house, thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, hath not to cease to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is given, to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, thy sins are forgiven. Today, for a few minutes, I'd like to speak to this subject. Are you seeing this? Are you seeing this? Let's have a word of prayer together today. Lord, thank you so much for this day that you've given us. And God, thank you for this time that we can come together and worship you through song and through generosity and now through the preaching and teaching of your word. And God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us ears to hear. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in a special and unique way, that we would recognize that the Word of God is powerful, it's alive, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And Lord, I pray that we would allow it to penetrate our hearts today so that we can make decisions that are pleasing to you and apply them to our lives on Monday and on Tuesday and throughout the week. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us. We love you. In Jesus' name, and everybody said... Amen. I remember several years ago, there was a picture that took the internet by storm. And this picture kind of went viral on social media. And everyone was arguing and debating over this picture. And I brought it with me this morning. It was of 
dress. How many of you ever remember seeing this dress online? Anybody remember this? And uh, a lot of people were arguing about this dress, trying to determine what color the dress really is. Some people believe that this is actually a white dress, and some people believe that this is a blue dress. And depending upon your uh, perception, it might be different. How many of you say, when you look at this dress, you see a white dress? Can I see your hands? Okay. And uh, how many of you say that you see a blue dress? Can I see your hands? See, we're going to have a church split this morning. We're just going to divide the whole place. Uh, Some people see a white dress. Some people see a blue dress. And uh, depending upon your perception, you might see something differently. You know, perception is a funny thing in life. That perception can often very easily be misunderstood. And I think that so often in life, as followers of Jesus, one of our greatest struggles is actually seeing the things that God wants us to see. Often we have no problem seeing the things that we want to see, but seeing the things that God wants us to see. And often we look at life through a skewed lens. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, my wife Katie, she lost her sunglasses. And so we went to a sunglass stand and, and uh, the salesperson was trying to sell us on this particular kind of polarized sunglasses. And uh, uh, she said, look at this. And she held up this little board and, and you could see kind of faintly an image, but you couldn't really tell what it was. And, and uh, then she said, okay, now try on the polarized sunglasses. And as soon as you put on the sunglasses, then you could see this parrot and all the colors of the parrot. And it was this beautiful image when you looked at it through the right lens. And we couldn't see it before we had that lens. And I thought about that. And I thought, I wonder how often in life we are missing out on what God has for us because we're looking at life through the wrong lens. We miss out on opportunities. We miss out on instruction. We miss out on relationships because we're not seeing the things that God wants us to see. Uh, The Apostle Paul had a passion about this and he was praying for the church in this area. And this is what he said in Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 18. The Apostle Paul says, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Now, in context, this was actually a prayer for the church. He was saying, I'm praying that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is that hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Paul was saying, I'm praying that you would see all that God has for you. I'm praying that your eyes of understanding would be enlightened so that you can see that which God wants you to see. How many of you today are interested in seeing the things that God wants you to see? Anybody like that? Uh, Later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, it says this, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And so often we are looking at things that are temporary. We're looking at things that are trivial. We're looking at things that don't really matter in life rather than fixing our eyes on Jesus and considering uh, what will matter in all of eternity. Uh, We need often a new perspective. Now, we come to Luke chapter 7, and this is a powerful passage where Jesus comes to the table, and he's sharing a meal with a Pharisee, and he's teaching this powerful principle, this powerful lesson on spiritual vision, on making sure that we can see things and see people the way that God wants us to see them. Now, I love Luke's gospel for many reasons. I love the book of Acts. The book of Acts is written by Luke as well. And Luke was funded and resourced by a man named Theophilus. Theophilus was a wealthy businessman type, and he was interested in the first century about the person of Jesus. He heard about Jesus, and he heard some stories about Jesus, but he wanted to make sure that what he was hearing was accurate. And so what he did was he funded Luke 
Uh, Luke was a doctor, he was a historian, and he wrote with such accurate precision. And so Theophilus uh, funded Luke, gave him the money, gave him the resources to go and to investigate the person of Jesus, the real historical person of Jesus. And he said, I want you to go and uh, interview all the eyewitnesses. I want you to ask everyone what they saw. I want you to write it all down, and I want you to send it back to me. And so because of this, Luke writes with great precision, and he gives us so much detail that has been proven to be true uh, time and time again. In fact, one commentator, William Barclay, said this, this story in Luke chapter 7 is so vivid that it makes one believe that Luke may have well been an artist, that Luke gives us so much detail in this story that really makes the story come alive. Now, by the time we get to Luke chapter 7, uh, the ministry and life of Jesus was well underway. Jesus had already performed miracles. He had already taught to many crowds. And now he's gaining some attention and some momentum. Because of this, there is a prominent Pharisee, the Bible says, named Simon, that hears about Jesus and wants to invite Jesus into his home. And so that's the context of Luke 7. And so as we study this passage, we're pulling up a chair to the table and we're listening into this conversation between a Pharisee and between Jesus. And as we listen in, I believe today that we learn four life-changing principles about Jesus. We learn four principles about Jesus that can help us gain clarity in life, that we can see the things that God wants us to see. And so if you're taking notes today, I want to give you a couple of these principles to jot down. Number one is this. We have to recognize that Jesus will show up where he's invited. This is something that we have to know today, that Jesus will show up where he's invited. Notice how our text starts in verse number 36. If you're with me today, would you say amen? amen? Verse 36. And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And so right off the bat, we're introduced to a Pharisee that invited Jesus into his home. Now, in case you needed a little refresher, a Pharisee was someone that was an expert in religious law. A Pharisee was a morally upright person. This man, undoubtedly, he tithed, he prayed, he fasted, he went to the synagogue every time he was supposed to. He did all of the right things. And in scripture, we know that the Pharisees were always hostile toward Jesus. In fact, Luke's gospel mentions the Pharisees 28 times, and 28 times they were hostile to Jesus. And so uh, Luke mentions this man, Simon, who invites Jesus into his home. And then once Jesus gets there, as we'll see, Simon was kind of rude to him. Simon kind of gave him the cold shoulder, uh, as we'll see. And so the question that we have to answer right off the bat is, why would this hostile Pharisee, invite Jesus to share a meal with him in his own home. Why would he extend this invitation? Perhaps it was because he thought that the debate would be interesting. Maybe he wanted to have a theological debate with Jesus. Maybe he knew that Jesus was gaining popularity with the crowds, and so he thought it might be cool to invite Jesus into his home, kind of having an influencer in his home. Uh, undoubtedly, the Pharisee was curious about Jesus. But did you know there's a difference between being curious about Jesus and being committed to Jesus? Many people today are interested in Jesus. Many people are interested in the things of God. But there's a difference between being interested in the things of God and being invested in the things of God. Many people show up on a Sunday morning because they are interested, but very few ever get fully invested. I'm praying that at Rock Hill Church, we would have some people that, yes, are interested in the things of God, but also we would be invested into the things of God. That we would be willing to give of our time, talent, and our treasure to further the work of the gospel. And so Simon the Pharisee, he invites Jesus into his home. That was interesting in and of itself. But here is uh, something that is also interesting. Jesus accepted the invitation. Simon invited him to his house, and Jesus showed up. He said, okay, I'll go. Can I tell you this morning, you'll be surprised where God will show up if you invite him. 
Last week, Jesus showed up to the house of a publican, a tax collector, a sinner. This week, he shows up to the house of a religious man, a Pharisee. Can I tell you that Jesus cares about the poor, that Jesus cares about the prominent, that Jesus cares about all people? And Jesus will show up to the house of a publican. He'll show up to the house of a Pharisee. Can I tell you that Jesus wants to show up in your life, that he wants to do a work in the life of your marriage? He wants to do a work in the life of your children. He wants to do a work in the life of your kids' sports leagues. He wants to do a work in your business. God will show up wherever he's invited. The only question is, have you invited him in? Sometimes we compartmentalize Jesus to Sunday. But I want you to know that God is not just interested in you on Sunday. He's interested in you. And so we have to invite him in into every area of our lives. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, all throughout the week. Uh, the Bible says this in Revelation chapter number 3, in verse number 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. This is Jesus. He's standing at the door and he's knocking. If any man will hear my voice and open the door... I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Jesus wants and desires to have fellowship with us. And a lot of times people will quote this verse in terms of salvation, and they'll quote this verse in terms of lost people. But remember, this verse, Jesus was standing outside the door of the church. And he said, hey, I'm knocking. Is anyone going to let me in? Hey, we can go through on Sunday, but are we really, really inviting Jesus into our lives? And so we have to recognize that God will show up where he's invited. And so Jesus shows up to the house of Simon the Pharisee. And this leads us to our second thought, number two, if you're taking notes. Jesus is worthy of fervent worship. Now, Jesus is worthy of fervent worship. Notice what our text says in verse number 37. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment. And so we're introduced to uh, this woman. And unlike Jesus, she was not invited to this party. She was not on the guest list. Uh, when Katie and I got married at our reception, we had a photo booth. And uh, a lot of people would go into that photo booth, and they would take pictures, and there was props, and it was a lot of fun. And, uh, and uh, people were having fun in that photo booth. And a couple of weeks later, the photo booth company, they sent Katie and I through an email, a digital copy of all the photos that night. And uh, some of which I think people would have been happy just to keep to themselves. But we, we got access to all those photos. And as we were kind of swiping through all those photos, we noticed so many people that were not even invited to the reception. We thought, how did they even get there? They were just enjoying a free meal at our reception, right? And uh, they were not on the guest list. And this woman that shows up in verse number 38, she was not on the guest list. And we might wonder through our Western eyes as we read this text, well, then how did she gain access to Jesus? But we have to remember that in the first century culture, especially in a prominent individual's home, they would often eat in the outer courtyard. And the people in the village that would pass by would, would pass by and they would listen in to these conversations. In fact, when a rabbi was debating another rabbi, this would have been a form of entertainment for a small village and small community. And so uh, they would come by, they would listen in. And this explains how this woman had access to come to this party. She certainly would not have been welcome in this party. In the first century culture, a woman, especially a woman of ill that had a poor reputation like this woman would have never been included in a dinner party or banquet like this. And yet she shows up to the table. And, and did you notice how uh, Luke describes her, the description that she's given, that the Pharisee uh, called her and that she was called a sinner? Did you notice that? She's a sinner. Now, most commentators say that this was a euphemism for a prostitute, that when she was called a sinner, she was called a woman of the night, uh, that, that she was a harlot, that her sin was so egregious that it actually became her label, that this woman is a sinner. 
And so she had a poor reputation in the community, and she was not invited, and yet she shows up to the table. But I think it's interesting in the life and ministry of Jesus, chronologically, when you study the harmony of the Gospels, that just before this event, Jesus had a powerful teaching, and Jesus said some famous words just before Luke chapter 7 in Matthew chapter 11 that says this. Are you with me today? Watch this. Jesus taught this right before this meal. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Perhaps this was the invitation that the woman heard. And so she wasn't invited to Simon's table, but aren't you thankful she was invited to the table of Jesus? And perhaps she was listening to Jesus teach, saying, man, that, that, that applies to me. I, I'm tired. I, I've got a burden. I've lived this life, and I've lived a life of sin, uh, but I'm searching for uh, something else. I'm searching for something that the world can't uh, satisfy in my soul, and she comes to Jesus. Uh, her description was a sinner, but then when she comes to Jesus, we see her devotion. Now, this scene is almost a little awkward to read. It's almost, it almost seems shocking. Now, it would have been shocking in the first century as well for Simon to be watching what's taking place. But let's uh, read the verse, and then we'll unpack it together. Notice verse 38. It says this. And stood to his feet behind him, this is speaking of the woman, weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. This is an act of total surrender and devotion toward Jesus. Now, now we read this, and it might seem a little socially awkward that she was doing this, but I want to give you a little bit of context as to what would take place in the first century, okay? Everybody tracking with me so far? So in the first century, uh, there would be uh, cultural customary greetings that you would extend just for normal uh, uh, being, being courteous to your guests. This was something that Simon didn't do, and I want you to see how Jesus kind of reprimands Simon for not doing this. So, so notice Notice in Luke chapter 7, notice verse 46. Let's skip ahead a little bit. Verse 44, excuse me. Verse 44, Jesus is talking to Simon, and he says this, I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, hath not, to, uh, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. And so these were cultural uh, customary greetings that a host would normally extend. So the three things, uh, washing of the feet. During this time in culture, when you walk to and fro with your sandals, your feet would get very dirty. And so it was customary at, at the entrance of every home to have a basin of water, and it was customary for the host to wash the feet of the guests. Simon didn't do that for Jesus. The next thing Jesus says, you didn't kiss my cheek. And of course, in this culture, in Eastern culture, there is a greeting of a kiss on the cheek. And uh, this is equivalent to us extending a hand to shake someone's hand as a greeting. Simon didn't do that. And then also in this culture, you would anoint a guest with oil. This was not done for spiritual or symbolic purposes in this moment. This was simply done for the fragrance of it. They didn't have deodorant in the first century. And so sometimes they would anoint people with oil to make the sweet-smelling fragrance fill the home. All three of those cultural customary greetings, Simon didn't do. That would be like you inviting someone to your home and not offering to take their coat. And when they stick their hand out to shake your hand, you don't extend your hand to shake their hand. Simon was giving Jesus the cold shoulder. Simon was uh, snubbing Jesus. He didn't want to extend the typical uh, uh, greetings that you would in this first century. And so he didn't do it. And so the woman thought, I'll do it. 
And so she comes in, and the Bible says that she washes the feet of Jesus, and she does it with so much passion and emotion that she is weeping. She is crying because of the forgiveness that Jesus extended to her. She's weeping, she's crying, and the tears become the water by which she washes Jesus' feet. She's so overcome with emotion that she begins to kiss Jesus' feet. Uh, one commentator that comments on this passage, uh, his name is Alfred Plummer. He said this, kissing the feet was a common mark of deep reverence, especially to leading rabbis. And so, so she is extending this deep reverence and honor, and she's anointing Jesus. She brought with her that alabaster box of ointment that would have had a sweet-smelling fragrance, and she uh, poured it on the feet of Jesus, which, by the way, would have been very costly. Can I tell you today that true service always requires sacrifice? that she came to the feet of Jesus and she was willing to sacrifice everything that she had. She put it all on the table. This was an, ex uh, an example of extreme devotion and fervent worship. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 says this, By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. The sacrifice of praise to God continually. Uh, that is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. And so she approaches Jesus with this fervent worship. Here's the question for us today. When we approach Jesus in worship... Do we come with all our heart and soul? Do, do we come with this kind of fervency in our worship? Or when we come together, are we reserved? See, if we're not careful, we'll become like Simon the Pharisee that becomes accustomed to the things of God, that become very familiar with the things of God. I've heard this song before. Try to impress me with the next one. Oh, I've, I've heard Luke chapter 7 before. I've, I've been here, but okay, I, I already know we're doing this again become very familiar with the things of God. Uh, but can I tell you that familiarity always breeds contempt. And Simon the Pharisee was uh, someone that was familiar with the things of God, and he was not approaching uh, uh, Jesus, certainly like this woman, with fervent worship. A.W. Tozer says this. Now, this is very important, uh, I believe, when it comes to a church that's passionate about serving. How many of you believe that we ought to be passionate when it comes to our service before the Lord, right? And at Rock Hill, we love the dream team. We love our parking team, our ushers, our, our nursery workers, our kids team, and uh, our media. Let's give it up for our media team in the back. We're so thankful for all of our dream team. But listen to this quote. A.W. Tozer, we're here to be worshipers first and workers only second. We take a convert and immediately make a worker out of him. God never meant it to be so. God meant that a convert should learn to be a worshiper, and after that, he can learn to be a worker. The work done by a worshiper will have eternity in it. So often we are distracted by the work of the ministry that we forget that our primary intent and purpose in life is to be a worshiper. In fact, we were all created worshipers. Everybody in this room worships something because the word worship simply means to ascribe worth or value to something. We can worship all kinds of things. We can worship sports. We can worship a career. We can worship self. Uh, anything in life that takes the place of God becomes an idol. And that could even be a good thing. A good thing that's elevated to a God thing becomes a bad thing. And so we are unceasing worshipers. But there is only one person that is worthy of our worship. There is only one person that is worthy of our fervent worship. His name is Jesus Christ. And he truly is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he is worthy of all of our passion, of all of our fervency when it comes to worship. Revelation chapter 4 verse number 11 says, Thou art worthy. Do you believe it? Is he worthy? Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. We were created to worship. We were created to give God glory. And so we have to stop worshiping self, stop worshiping our stuff, stop worshiping sex, 
Stop worshiping money and start worshiping the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He alone is worthy of our fervent worship. This woman was, was demonstrating fervent worship out of a heart filled with praise and gratitude toward Jesus. Now, this leads us to our third principle today. Are you ready for number three? Number three is this. Jesus sees what we don't see. Jesus sees what we don't see. A couple of weeks ago, we were on vacation, and we were at the beach, and we saw somebody on the shore uh, shouted, and they said, there's a turtle. And, uh, and so all of my kids, they rushed over there, and they're seeing this turtle, and they're all excited, and everyone was happy to see the turtle other than my youngest daughter, Blakely, and she was frustrated because she couldn't see it. And uh, she was looking and looking at it. She's like, I don't see getting kind of angry, and uh, I don't see the turtle, and so I ran over to her, and I picked her up, and I, I carried her over, and I said, Blakely, look, uh, the turtle's right there, right in front of us, it was like three feet away, and Blakely was looking in the water, and she says, I still don't see it, and she was getting frustrated, and then eventually that little turtle kind of popped its head up out of the water, and Blakely said, I can see it, and she saw uh, that little turtle's head, and she was so excited because she could finally see it. Here is the major problem for Simon in this text. He couldn't see it. He couldn't see what God wanted him to see. He, he was seeing physically this woman, but he couldn't really see what was taking place. And I want you to see how this unfolds in the heart of Simon. So he's observing this scene. I want you to see how it unfolds. Notice verse number 39. If you're with me today, would you say amen? amen. Verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, everybody say saw it. Saw it. He was watching this take place. He saw it. He, he was seeing this happen. He spake within himself, so he didn't say it out loud. Have you ever thought something about a situation that you didn't say out loud? Anybody like that? He's watching this. He's thinking some things. He spake within himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. Simon says, I don't know about this person, Jesus, because if he really was a prophet, this wouldn't be happening. He would have known what manner of woman this is that toucheth him. Uh, he, he, I don't know about this. He's thinking this in his heart. He's looking around at his, his friends and other guests at the dinner party that were at the table. He's looking around like, are you seeing this? This would have been embarrassing for Simon. This would have been a humiliating situation. In fact, according to the ancient Jewish law book called the Talmud, uh, for a woman to let down her hair in public in a scene like this uh, would have been grounds for her husband to divorce her. This would have been extremely inappropriate in this setting. In fact, if children were there, they probably would have covered the eyes of the children at the scene that was unfolding. And so Simon is watching all this like, this is inappropriate. This is shocking. Uh, this is something uh, that is not acceptable for my own home. And he's thinking in himself, this can't be a prophet because he would not allow this. Now notice how Jesus responds in verse 40. And Jesus answering said unto him, don't you love how Jesus can answer questions that we don't even ask? That... He thought it in his heart, and Jesus says, oh, I have a response for you, Simon. <laughs> um, actually, Simon, I, I want to address that, that, that thought that you just had. I have something to say to you. He knows the thoughts and intents of our heart. Just because we don't say it, he knows what we're thinking. And Simon said, Master, say on. Okay, I, I want to hear. He invites him to, to speak. And then Jesus, in verse number 41, he starts a parable, a, a little parable. A parable is a little story with a big idea. It's, a, it's a, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. This is one of the most simple and short parables that Jesus ever gave. It's very easy to understand. He gives this short parable starting in verse 41. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. 
The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And so there was one creditor. He lent two men some money. They owed uh, 500 pence and 50 pence. 500 denarius or 50 denarius. One denarius was equal to one day's wage. And so 500 denarius or 500 pence would have been about two years salary that this person owed. 50 pence in today's money, some commentators say maybe around $10,000 was the 50 pence. And so both amounts of money were extremely large for uh, an average worker in Jewish culture. Is everybody tracking so far? And so one owes 50 pence, one owes 500 pence. But here it is in verse number 42. And when they had nothing to pay. Now, if you have a habit of underlining in your Bible or marking in your Bible, please underline and mark that phrase because it's so significant. They had nothing to pay. Both of them were in debt. Both of them were insolvent. Neither one of them could repay the debt that they owed. Hey, it doesn't matter what the amount is. If you can't repay, you can't repay. Both of them, one that owed 50 and one that owed 500, they could not repay the debt. And this is a picture of the gospel. This is a picture of our condition as human beings that we too, because of our sin, owed a debt that we could never repay. And it doesn't matter how religious you are. It doesn't matter how good you try to be. It doesn't matter what education or experiences you might have had. We owed a debt that we could never repay. We are spiritually bankrupt in our own sin. But notice what the creditor says in verse 42. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Uh, Frankly, he quickly, urgently, uh, eagerly forgave both. Both of them. And this is the picture of the gospel. uh, That when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, the grace of God showed up and the love of God showed up. And he offered forgiveness for our sins so that he paid the price and the debt that we could never repay. Jesus went to the cross for you and for me. The Bible says in 1 John 2, verse number 2, that he is the propitiation. He is the payment for our sins and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And this is why we can come to church and we can say, oh, praise the one that paid my debt, that raised this life up from the dead. Is anybody thankful at the 10 o'clock service for the love and the grace and the forgiveness that is available through Jesus? He paid our debt. This parable is not, it's not about the amount of sin. It's about the awareness of sin. See, the problem for Simon was he couldn't see himself as a sinner. And Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter if you owe 50 or 500, all of us fall short of the, of the glory of God. And whosoever keeps the whole law and yet offended in one point, he is guilty of all. This is like someone that's drowning in 50 feet of water and looking at someone drowning in 500 feet of water and thinking, I'm thankful I'm not that guy. (laughs) See, the point is that there is none righteous, no, not one. And Simon's biggest struggle, and this is the point of this message, Simon's biggest struggle was he was blind spiritually. He couldn't see it. He couldn't see him. It was easy to see the woman as a sinner. Everybody in the whole community knew what she was doing. Everybody in the whole village knew her reputation. It was easy to label her a sinner. But Jesus was saying, Simon, you're a sinner too. You have self-righteousness in your heart. You have pride in your heart. Some sins are external, 2 Corinthians 7 says. Some some sins are internal. Just because you can't see it, uh, the reality is all of us are sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. And so notice what Jesus says in verse 44. Don't miss this. This is the central idea of the text here in verse 44. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, 
Now, now watch what takes place. You have to see this. He turns to the woman and he says to Simon, are you seeing what's happening? He turns to the woman, but he's talking to Simon. And he says, seest thou this woman? What an interesting question. Of course he saw her. It was the only thing he could see at his own house. It was the only thing he could think about. He couldn't stop looking at her. But Jesus says, do you really see her? Because you are seeing her for what she has done in the past. But are you seeing her as forgiven in my presence? You are seeing her past, but you are not seeing her potential. You are not seeing her future. And this was Simon's biggest problem. He couldn't see it. He couldn't see in three areas. And I want you to see it because I think it applies to our lives as well. Uh, Simon, first of all, he couldn't see Jesus for who Jesus was. He didn't see Jesus as Savior. He, he, he thought maybe merely a prophet. He couldn't see Jesus as Savior. Then he couldn't see who he was, a sinner. So he struggled to see Jesus for who Jesus is. He struggled to see himself. And then because of that, he couldn't see this woman for who she was in Christ. So he couldn't see himself, he couldn't see others in the right light, and he couldn't see Jesus. I believe that all three are connected. It begins today with, with us having an understanding, first of all, and having a clear picture of who Jesus is. We have to recognize that Jesus is more than a prophet. He's more than a good teacher. He's more than just a good luck charm. He's more than just something we add to the shelf. That Jesus truly is God in the flesh. That Jesus truly is Savior. And once you understand who Jesus is, then you can understand who you really are. So first you have an understanding of who Jesus is, and then you can take a look within and say, okay, I am a sinner. I, I, I am a messed up, broken person. That, that all of us are in the same category. I don't mean to offend anyone today, but the reality is, is we all have something in common. We're all sinners. But if we understand who Jesus is and understand why he came, then we can understand of who we are now in Christ, that we are children of God, that we are citizens of God's kingdom, that we are sheep of his pasture. Aren't you thankful that, that Jesus can come in and transform us from the inside out and give us a brand new identity? And so I don't identify this morning uh, by my upbringing. I don't identify by a sexual orientation. I don't identify myself by what I do. I identify myself by who I belong to, and his name is Jesus Christ. So our identity is in Christ. So we have to understand who Jesus is and see him. We have to understand who we are in light of who Jesus is, and then once we do that, we can start seeing others how God sees them. We can start looking at the people in our community and in our city through the lens of compassion, through the lens of Jesus. I believe today that there are people that we see every single day in Rancho Cucamonga, in Ontario, in Upland, in Fontana that are just like this woman. But the question is, do we really see them? Jesus looks at Simon and says, seest thou this woman? Are, are you really seeing her? See, Simon struggled with spiritual blindness. And he couldn't see the situation for what Jesus was trying to teach. And this leads us to our last thought today. Number four is this. Jesus has the power to forgive. He sees what we cannot see, but he has the power to forgive. Notice our text and how it concludes. Notice verse number 47. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins which are many are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth. Little. Now, she was not forgiven because she loved much. She loved much because she was forgiven. Okay, there's an important distinction there. 
because we do not have a works-based salvation. The woman was not saved because of her service, because of how much she loved. Okay, some might take this text and twist it to mean that to a heretical doctrine, but we do not believe that. She was forgiven, and because she was forgiven, that motivated her to love much. Okay, this is what Jesus was saying. Notice verse 48. And he said unto her, thy sins are forgiven. Now, notice Jesus did not say, God forgives you. He says, thy sins are forgiven, claiming that he has the authority to forgive sins. Now, he knew exactly what he was doing because the question was always, uh, who has the authority? Who has the power to forgive sins but God alone? And so what Jesus was doing here by saying, thy sins are forgiven, what he was doing was claiming deity. He was letting that Pharisee know and everyone else that was listening, I'm not just a prophet like you think. I am God in the flesh. He was claiming his deity. Notice verse 49. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? They, they knew what he was claiming. Who is this that's saying he can claim to forgive sins? Verse 50. And he said to the woman, Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. So here's what we have to see. It wasn't her love that saved her. Everybody tracking with me? Jesus made it very clear. It's your faith that saved you. So now you can go in peace. Uh, now you can experience a brand new life. And so Jesus offered the forgiveness of her sins. H how did this woman know that she was forgiven? Jesus told her. He said, thy sins are forgiven thee. How do we know that we are forgiven? He tells us. We know in his word, Ephesians 4.32, and be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Aren't you thankful today that we are forgiven and freed by Jesus Christ? Now, there's an author, his name is Sid Field, and in his books on screenwriting, he talks about different movies, and he talks about uh, different famous stories, and he said that every great story has a great character, and every great character has a common denominator. And that common denominator is every great character has what he calls a dramatic need. A dramatic need. He gives the example of the Lord of the Rings, and he says that Frodo has a dramatic need to return that ring back to the mountain. I'm not sure what the mountain is called. I'm not a huge Lord of the Rings guy, but you guys understand what I'm saying, right? That, that he had a dramatic need. And whatever obstacle stands in the way, whatever barrier stands in the way, they can overcome that barrier and get through that obstacle. Why? Because there's a dramatic need that's present. Please hear me. All of us today have a dramatic need. And that dramatic need is the forgiveness of our sins. Our greatest need is forgiveness. Our greatest need was not physical healing or else God would have sent a doctor. Our greatest need was not education. God would have sent an educator. Our greatest need was not safety. He would have sent a military leader. Our greatest need was the forgiveness of sins. So he sent his son as a savior of our sins. This is our greatest need. But please hear me. The forgiveness of sins is not automatic. God has extended forgiveness, but will we receive it? There's this very interesting story. I'll tell it to you real quick. There was a man in the 1800s. His name was George Wilson, and George Wilson got arrested because he stole some mail. And back in the 1830s, the punishment for stealing mail was to be hanged. Aren't you thankful that's not a law today, to be hanged for stealing mail? Well, he was in prison for a while, and the president at the time was Andrew Jackson, 
And he decided to issue a pardon to George Wilson. He wrote out a pardon to set him free. And he sent it to George Wilson. But for whatever reason, George Wilson had a callous heart, a cold heart, and he didn't want to receive that letter. And so he refused the pardon. He didn't accept it. He sent the letter back. And everyone in the legal system and the justice system was kind of confused because they thought, well, what are we supposed to do? He got a pardon, but he didn't want it. And eventually, the Chief Justice John Marshall, he delivered this decision. A pardon is a slip of paper, the value of which is determined by the acceptance of the person to be pardoned. If it is refused, it is no pardon. George Wilson must be hanged. The pardon is only good if you receive it. Today, the question is, have you received the forgiveness of your sins? That Jesus went to the cross. He died on the cross in your place to be the propitiation, the payment for your sins, to pay that debt that you could never pay back. And three days later, he rose again from the grave, defeating sin, death, and the grave. But have you received and accepted the forgiveness of your sins? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes today.